Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night Shir, we Wednesday we mean weekly. Shabbos Pashas Ekev. What a name for a Pasha, Ekev, heal. And today, of course, as all know, was Chof Menachem Ov. Chof Menachem Ov, the yard site of the Heliqa Mamakubal, Ablevik, the Rebbe's father. This Shabbos, Shabbos, Shemivarchim Chaydish, Elul. Yeah, powerful. Very, very powerful. A lot to talk about, a lot to do. Very, very rich Pasha. And of course, we need to speak about Chav Menachem Ov, the outside Rabbi Levik. Traditionally, always, the Fabrengans were the night after the day. And so, too, the Fabrengan would be tonight. People would come from all over. The Rebbe would probably yard side, the Rebbe would make a seam. It was a very emotional time for the Rebbe. Father's yard side. Unfortunately for the Rebbe, he did not spend much of the last years with his father. And so when his mother arrived here, she had she took pen to paper and wrote down a lot of the memoirs and said, I want my children to know it. I want my sons to see this. I want my sons to know about their father. And I believe there's a book coming out of about 550 pages worth of the memoirs that Ebbetson wrote about her husband. The Blavik was a brilliant, brilliant man. For the first few years after his marriage, sat and studied Tata. And his father-in-law, not a man of means, would support him. Huh? What do I do? Not really a man of means, but... He supported his son-in-law for quite a few years. <coughs> and time came finally his son-in-law to look for a position, a rabbinic position of course. One city that he went to for a position, he was told he needs a high school diploma. Equivalent to what we'd call a high school diploma today. I believe it was a brilliant, brilliant mathematician. Many professors of math used to come from universities to discuss math problems with Rabbi Levick. <laughs> math problems, equations. You think math, you think about 2 plus 2 or 5 times 7. Adding, subtraction, division, multiplication. Yet math is so much deeper. And equations and problems, problem solving, 
was a very big is a very big factor in math today especially. And I believe it was a very big mumcha, and many professors, as I said, would come to him with problems. The story is told that one time a professor came late at night and still discussing his problem with the with Blavik. And Blavik's son, Menachem Mendel, who we cherish know as the Rebbe, was standing upstairs and he heard this dialogue. He was standing on the side, wherever he was standing. And a few minutes later, little Menachem Mendel pushed a piece of paper into his father's pocket. His father was not very happy about being disturbed, little boy putting papers in his father's pocket now. He ignored it. When the professor left, Levick reached into his pocket, took out the paper, and saw it was the solution to the problem. Little Mendel, little the Rebbe, solved the problem ready on, piece, on a small piece of paper. <coughs> Ultimately, the Levick went to do the diploma, whatever he needed for to become a rob of the city, only to find out that there were certain things, that, certain subjects that had to be studied which were not the Jewish belief. To which Levick refused. And as a matter of fact, he traveled all the way to, I think, Petersburg to take the exams. And when he got there and saw this subject was on the test, he didn't even stay for overnight. He immediately turned around and went home. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the position that opened up, because unfortunately the Rabbanim were older, Rabbanim of the city, was a very, very large city of about 70,000 families, 70,000 Jews maybe, a city called Yekaterinoslav. And although the Zionists very much wanted a more modern Rav, Rebbe Rashab wrote a letter to the head of the Zionist organization there, the highly recommending of Levik, saying this would be the wish of the vacated rabbi. And ultimately, Reb Levick was hired as the chief rabbi of Akatrinislav. Communist Russia was communist Russia. And so, the 9th of Nisan, 1939, 3 o'clock in the morning, it was a Wednesday morning, and the people were banging the doors down of Reb Levick's house. Ebenezer opened the doors. He gave us for the as we say. There were four people there, and she realized right away these are from the Enkivadeh. Enkivadeh was the organization before the KGB. 
And the four officers marched into the living room, started screaming, yelling, Where's Rabbi David Schneerson? <coughs> he stood up to, sit, to present himself, and they roughly shoved a search warrant into his hands. They went three hours scrounging around the house, turning everything upside down. In his study, they found boxes of his ksovim, his writings, correspondence between Ablevik and other Rabbanim. They turned over furniture, they emptied shelves. They destroyed the place. Looking for something that will incriminate Ablevik. After three hours, they turned to Ablevik. Rabbi said, Come with us. It was Chesnissen, and Ablevik said, Perhaps I could take a few pounds of matzah with me. And they agreed. When he was arrested, Abzachana was told she could bring her husband food and other necessities in the morning. When she came a few hours later with his package, he said he was not there. She thought they did who knows what with him already. She called the prosecutor's office and they said, no, your husband is definitely there. Each time she went there, the guy just barked her away. Five months later, it was Khan's frustrated attempt to find her husband and finally, she got a message that Blavik was indeed in prison and she could bring him the care packages every 10 days. Two months later, the month of Cheshvin, an unexpected visitor came. A guy came to Reb Tzimchana. He introduced himself as a cellmate of Blavik he just got out of prison in Kiev. He says, but before I left, I promised your holy husband that as soon as I can, I'll personally inform of your situation. Of his situation. And he told the following, that the day after the, the Blavik was arrested, he was transferred from Yakutrinislav and he was brought to a prison in Kiev. There they tried everything to break his spirit. Solitary confinement, starvations. They tortured him. But he was innocent and he wouldn't waver. Rebzachana asked, Did he tell you what he was accused of? And he said, So, fellow guys, the Shamus in the Shul told the Anki over there that he built a mikveh in the Shul. On Simchas Teda, a lot of money was collected. For two big officials that the government ultimately executed because of treason. And now they brought the Shamus himself to the trial. And as he shows up to testify at the trial, he sees Levik and he started to tremble and he said no 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 it's not true I, I, I re- regret, regret saying anything 
No. Now the star witness down. It's a problem. What do we do now? To relinquish the case, they're not ready to do that. They want to let him out. And so... Zechariah was very, very happy that the visitor told her all the information. She found out later the story that even though they didn't have their witness, then Kevedah continued to maintain that Levik somehow had something to do with the enemy estate. He claimed he was continuing the underground. If you have any mics on, please turn your mics off. Please turn off your mic. You're not on mute. You're disturbing the other people. He's listening to last week's year. He doesn't realize it. Okay. And so much more so with his continuous mechutn, there's Yitzchak Shnesen. But the mechutn himself, because of political pressure, the Friedrich Rebbe managed to escape from Russia. Oh, welcome back over there. Now, despite the fact they had no evidence against the Rebbe on the Shana Rabbe at night, the Rebbe was informed he was sentenced to five years in exile in Kazakhstan. This keeps him away from all the Jews. Um, they just wanted to destroy him. And the story goes on, he went to Kazakhstan, and that's where he ultimately died, in a city known as Almata. Chaim um, Tashkent told the story that when he was in a place called Chili, he did a lot of traveling for his work. He traveled to a city called Chili, and there, he didn't travel to Chili, he was going through Chili actually, and there was a layover, as we call it, in the train station there. So he had a few hours to be there, a few minutes to be there, actually, 20 minutes to be there. So he stepped out of the train a little bit. When he stepped out of the train, he saw this man that looked very regal. He looked like a prince. And he looked like a chassid. So he walked over, gave him Shalom Aleichem. And the chassid, Reb Levik, excuse me, the other way around, Reb Levik came over to him, gave him Shalom Aleichem. Reb Levik was talking to him. Where does he hail? Where is he going? And he said he's returning to Samarka, to Tashkent. You're going back to Tashkent? 
I have a few landslides from Yakatrinislav that are there in Tashkent. Please tell them that I'm here. And doing mitzvahs here, there's a green verm. Expression used to say, extremely difficult. Chaim came back to the Ketrinistav, told the story. He came back to the Tashkent, he told a few of the Chesidim. Ultimately, in Tavshin Chai, Chaim Tashkent came to America. And he told this story to a Chassid. And Chassid said, why are you being foolish? Why aren't you going to tell the Rebbe the story? He would be so much happy to hear from his father. And so he went into Yechidus, he went to private audience with the Rebbe, and he told the Rebbe the story. That he met the Levik, and the Levik looked like a prince, the son of a king. And the Rebbe smiled and said, why the son of the king? Why not the king himself? And then finally the Levik said, the Chaim told the Rebbe, that he said, the message he sent was, that doing mitzvahs is a beginning of him. And the Rebbe stood up. Hearing this quote from his father, this painful, painful quote from his father, he just stood up and, and repeated it over and over. Ultimately, the Rebbe thanked him profusely for telling him. And the Rebbe wished, blessed him with long life. Chaim lived to three months before his 97th birthday. Oh, excuse me, I missed out the main part of the story. The reason that Ablavik was in the train station in Chili was because he got a message that Baruch Hashem, his wife, was able to give was able to bring him packages. His wife was able to bring him packages, wine, matzahs for Pesach, everything. So he would go every day to the train station to meet his wife. In case, in case, this was the train. Obviously, it was not a... uh, It was not... You didn't get a, a, a text message, you didn't get emails with verification when the person is coming. So therefore, the Rebbe, Rebbe Levik knew that his wife said she was coming, and he knew she would definitely come. He would go every day to the train station, stand there. She would come. That day, he would help her carry the packages. This is what he told Reb Chaim. Later, Reb Chaim regretted telling the Rebbe this last line, how Rebbe Levik was suffering the practice of Judaism there. And he didn't want to give the Rebbe Agmas Nefesh. He didn't want to give the Rebbe any pain. And it caused the Rebbe obviously pain visibly. And that he stood up when he heard these words. But as a chassid, giving this over, the Rebbe hearing something from his father... Every word counted to him. And therefore it was of great, great value. 
and they would have been very deprived cold water please there must be cold water in the fridge let us turn our focus to the Pasha very rich Pasha Tishmun said before Pasha named after the hill it sounds a little awkward you would imagine that a Pasha would be called about a head where does it come off to be called about a hill Ironically, the heel. Two things we have with the heel. Firstly, it's the lowest part of the body, obviously. Yeah, excuse me. Someone just brought me water without a cup. Well, I have a cup, that's why. Here. Victor is off. Why didn't you say something? There I am. Hello, everyone. Okay. The ankle, though, the heel, has another function. When we say the Kedusha in Shul, and we say the three words, Kadesh, 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 Holy, 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 the holiest part of Kedusha we lift ourselves up from our heels. Result of which, the entire body, the entire Ramach Evarim Shagidim, 248 limbs, and 365 sinews, including the brain, including the heart, all get lifted up. Because the heel raised itself. So we see the Baha'i Ekev. The Ekev is a very powerful thing. Rashi tells us, Ekev Tishmun, as you will listen, as you will hear, as you will act on the mitzvahs. Rashi, as we know, is the champion of the five-year-old learning Torah. And he comes and he tells us the simplest explanation of a Pasuk. And the Pasuk says, Ekev Tishmun, what does it mean? The word Ekev, it should say Ki, if you will. Ekev also means if you will, but it's a different form of a word, and ultimately even more so, it also translates as a heel. So Rashi explains, Ima mitzvahs hakalis she'odam dashba kev of Tishmun. With the simplest mitzvahs that one steps on with his ankles, you will be careful to listen with. Then Rashi writes, the aid Pirush Matsino. It comes from Ikvasid the Meshicha, which is the last footsteps of Mashiach. Which means to say Ikvas Mashiach Tishmun. We should hear the footsteps of Mashiach. For before Mashiach comes, all Jews will do everything that the Torah asks of us and will be listening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. These two explanations actually go hand in hand. I retract the second explanation was not in Rashi. 
But they enhance, these two explanations enhance one another. In the time of the Beis HaMikdash, when the Shekhinah, the Almighty's holiness, revealed itself, Jews felt the value and the greatness of Tere Mitzvah. And therefore, when they did a mitzvah, they learned Torah, they had pleasure, they derived pleasure from it, because they saw direct connect, as we say, with the Holy of Holies. On the other hand, in the time of exile, when the darkness envelops everything, and we don't merit to the revelation of the Shekhinah of Almighty, especially now in the Ikvus Meshicha, when we are really, really hit rock bottom, and the Jewish nation is, is not say any derogatory form, word for it, the Jewish nation is hurting, and the darkness overcoming the light. In this era, it's hard to feel holiness. It's hard to feel good about mitzvahs, the value of mitzvahs. And a person, therefore, doesn't have enjoyment necessarily with doing the mitzvahs. But when we're doing the mitzvahs, we're doing it because this is what we were told to do. When a person is doing mitzvahs because this is what God told them to do, even when the person doesn't enjoy it, doesn't see a tail, doesn't see anything outcome. So we see, therefore, in the time of the Holy Temple, the mitzvahs that the Almighty gave us to do caused simple pleasure. But in the time of Mashiach, in the last footsteps of Mashiach, It's just simply the yoke that's upon us. And therefore when a person does a mitzvah, and he has a gnaw from it, he has pleasure, and he values it, then there's a difference in his mitzvahs. There are those mitzvahs that he actually values, and there are those mitzvahs that he doesn't really get such a great rise out of. They're the simpler ones. And therefore doesn't get such pleasure. But when a person does a mitzvah, because this is what the Almighty commanded him and all the reason, all mitzvahs are equal to him. There's no differentiation. Because all of them are because it's God's commandment. And there's no difference the easiest and the hardest of mitzvahs. So now we understand how the two explanations go together. One is Ikvis and Meshicha that one does not feel in the time of the Ikvis and Meshicha the feeling of the revelation of the Shekhinah. 
And therefore his mitzvahs are an even plain, all mitzvahs are the same, only because I'm serving the Almighty. So also the mitzvahs that one steps on with his ankles are also treated the same way. The easiest, the simplest mitzvahs together with the hardest. On that note, the Taylor tells us in the Parsha, Ubeirach Prividnacha, Upriad Mosecha, the Gonacha Visirech, Visirach, Shgara Lafech, Vashritzenacha. He'll bless the fruits of your womb, the fruit of your soil, your grain, your wine, your oil, the offspring of your cattle, and the choice of your flocks. As we just said, a task, anything that a person does, usually is reflected in its reward. If I do something, and I get a good reward for it, I know I did something very big. If I do something, I get a smaller reward for it, I realize it wasn't so significant. So this raises the question, How could any reward in, the, reward in this world possibly compensate the doing of a mitzvah? After all, the Torah we just said now promises us material prosperity. Because after all, the doing of a mitzvah is so much greater and so much more valuable than this cattle and the grain. And the Mishnah says in Pikeyavis, Perek Dalit Mishnah Yudzayin, Yofa Sha'achas B'tshuva Maisim Tevim Ba'elam Hazer Mikol Chai Yelam A single moment of repentance and good deeds in this world is greater than the entire world to come. So even the reward in the world to come is not adequate compensation for doing a mitzvah on this world. No. So I ask you, what did I accomplish here? What am I looking forward to? Another Mishnah in Pekiyavis, in the same Perik, chapter 4, Mishnah Beis, Schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. The true reward of observing a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. The opportunity that mitzvah comes from the word says the Zohar of tzavsa v'chibur. Attachment. Connection. The mere fact that I had the opportunity to connect with God through the fulfillment of His will, that's the reward. And there are other commentaries that interpret this very Mishnah as saying that the reward, the reward for observing one mitzvah is the observance of another mitzvah. 
since mitzvah geireres mitzvah, one mitzvah causes a chain reaction to do other mitzvahs, in that case, that in itself is a mitzvah. The fact that you, that in itself is the reward that it continues the mitzvah going, doing. Because for the good fortune of connecting with God through additional mitzvahs, that's the ultimate prize. Greater than any physical or spiritual reward. We see this idea also, similarly, the way the Torah promises material prosperity. Physical well-being. If we observe the mitzvahs, the Rambam tells us, God promised the Torah that if we fulfill it joyfully and happily, all the obstacles which prevent us from fulfilling it, such as sickness, war, famine, will be removed. He'll grant us all of the good that will reinforce our fulfillment of the Torah. Such satiety and peace and abundance of silver and gold in order we should not need to devote our days to physical needs and will be free instead to study wisdom and perform mitzvahs. If we fulfill the mitzvahs, God provides us with everything that we need in this world. And we have everything we need in this world, we can continue to observe the Torah with even greater comfort and ease. And that is the granting us the greatest reward of, reward of all, the fact that we get a reward that we can observe more mitzvahs in a more happy and a more stable fashion. Rabbi Sai, we've discussed this before in this week's Pasha, because there's a very, very strange expression, a strange sentence in the Torah. Or it also says in our parasha, Fed you the manna in the desert, which your ancestors did not know, in order to afflict you. People were traveling in the desert. Traveling in the desert doesn't exempt you from food and drink or sleep. So obviously they needed food and drink. How were they sustained? They were sustained through the manna. The manna fell every day. Fell in different stages, obviously. The righteous one had his manna fell at his door ready to eat. The less righteous had it a little further away from his door. And the less righteous had it far from his door without not even ready to eat. They had to prepare it. But the manna sustained the Jew. So how can it be in order to afflict you? What affliction did we receive from the manna? 
If you're keeping score at home, the Talmud, Sechtes Yuma, 74, side B, Ayin Dalid, Amad Beis. And the Gemara interprets this verse, literally saying, that the manna was a food that physically left you hungry and afflicted. Wow! According to one explanation in the Talmud, what was the affliction here? Because you could not save manna from one day to the next. Whatever portion you had, you ate, and that was the end of it. And the next day you had new man. You didn't need to save it. But you knew you had to rely on tomorrow's fall. Therefore, even after filling oneself on the mana, your basket was now empty. And when a person doesn't have pas besaloi, does not have bread in his basket, he's hungry. A person that goes into the desert with a backpack full of bread and water and Powerades and uh, drinks and five-hour pet enemy and then whatever they get over there. Am I going to get it for that line? I can't advertise without any kind of product. So I have to change the names. And he's got a full backpack. And he starts trudging through the desert. And next to him is a guy who's luckier than him. Why? Because he's got a backpack with a little nothing in it, a, a knife and, a, and a, some string. But ironically, the guy walking with the knife and the string is walking slumped over. And the guy with the full backpack is walking with his head up high. Why? Because the guy with the full backpack knows when I'll get hungry, when I'll get thirsty. Buditam, pitam. I have food, I have drink. I'm in good shape. The other fellow, unfortunately, with only the string and the screwdriver and the hunting knife, he has no food. He doesn't know when he's going to get the next bite of food. So he's already retroactive. He just ate, he just finished his meal. He's, ret- he's already starting to feel hungry. He's already starting to feel thirsty because he doesn't have what to rely on. And similarly was the same thing with the man. Since the man depleted at the end of the day and you did not see any money in your refrigerator, on your shelf in your grocery, in the store, or your shelf in your kitchen, cabinets, you just felt a pang. On the other hand, the mana had spiritual qualities. And the vulnerability of hunger associated with the mana was in fact its praise. Because the fact that the mana had no shelf life showed that on the physical reality, the physical world, it never had a lifespan. All other things that are created have a lifespan. Human beings, animals, fruits, vegetables, trees. 
This had none. And as a result of this, there was a transcendent of nature. The man itself was reliant constantly on God. God constantly brought it into existence. Now the fact of the matter is, that everything that exists in this world is constantly recreated. That we live and we exist only because God is constantly recreating us. But we don't necessarily see that. But with the man, you saw that. You saw the man being created. If the man wasn't created, it wasn't there. And as soon as the man lost its tafkir on the world, it lost its existence, its reason for the world, it ceased to exist. It dissipated. So when a person is seeking a sense of self-sufficiency, and is seeking a sense of independence, then the man was a source of anxiety and affliction. Because he didn't have his freedom to eat whatever he wanted. Not everybody gets up, by the way, I don't know how to tell you the people this, and I hope you're listening to this year, you're not going to get very traumatized to hear this, but not everyone gets up at midnight to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. As a matter of fact, I think majority of people don't. Not every person wakes up in the middle of the night for a cup of tea. But if you don't have that peanut butter and jelly in your, in your cabinet, if you don't have that slice of bread, if you don't have that tea, then when you're sleeping at night, you're tossing and turning. I never ate a peanut butter jelly sandwich in the middle of the night. <laughs> Not peanut butter and jelly, we had other things. We had one night in Venezuela. We were having a, a winter camp. So we needed food for the winter camp. So we had gotten packages from the United States. One of the things that we got was a novelty hot dogs. We hadn't seen hot dogs in months. So it was a very exciting thing. Okay, fill this up with a It was very exciting that hot dogs are here. <laughs> so we actually, at 2.30 in the morning, it was 1.30 actually, we dug a little hole in the corner of the box. Nobody should know, because once you start this, they won't get any, no hot dogs will ever make it to camp. And we were able to jiggle out of the hole one hot dog at a time, there were three of us. We juggled out six hot dogs. This is now one thirty in the morning. And we snuck into the, we didn't have to sneak in the kitchen, there was no lock on the kitchen. And the reason there was no lock on the kitchen was Yeshiva was because we told them it's not worth the money. They put a lock, we'll go in. If we want to go in, we'll go in. We don't want to go in, we'll go in. So the kitchen was never locked. Itaka never made any problems usually. This particular night we decided we we're gonna have hot dogs. We put the hot dogs in the broiler and we sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. We are going to have a feast. Two hot dogs. I think we may have bread. Oh no, we used to get actually pancitos. Um baguettes. Small baguettes. We used to get them every two, three days. 
So we had Mustam in the in the kitchen. So it was really something to look forward to. A family, one of the families that was close to the with the Bakram, was driving by. They were coming home from somewhere, and they saw the lights on. They didn't see any Bakram. We were in the back. The windows were open always because he needed the air. He didn't need air conditioning. He just needed a little bit of air from the outside. And the evening was beautiful. And the guy comes, he gets out of his car, and he starts screaming my name. And we had three Bakram in the Kutsa that were named Mendy. So he called my name and he called Mendy. He has bound to hit something. Throw a rock in your shalim, you're bound to hit either an Eisenbach or a cat. And lo and behold, there was one Mendy and myself that was part of this conspiracy. For us it was very exciting when people came community people came and wanted to talk with us. We were Bakram. It was a novelty. So here the guy's calling us. We come running to the window. We open the door. I remember they came in and we went outside to the family. And the great conversation ensued. We had a great time. We were a great com- It was great. It was talked to that. Kitzer. We were really happy with this conversation I don't remember if someone agreed to put on film the next morning because of it or if the father or the sons would agree to come to yeshiva to start learning excuse me, something was the outcome of this conversation we felt accomplished until we got back into the yeshiva and we started to sniff and we realized that one accomplishment we did tonight was also burned six hot dogs. So, it was not fun. <clears throat> it was very devastating, but it was now 2.30, a quarter to, th- 2.30, a quarter to 3 in the morning. So hot dogs were crisp. They were nothing left of the charcoal. And needless to say, our appetite was not relinquished, and therefore we took out another six hot dogs and made those. Um, that is not relevant, either here nor there. We just got to hope that the people that are in power in the yeshiva don't listen to this year. So the person looking for self-sufficiency, looking for haughtiness, and I am, when he didn't have his food, he was upset. He was annoyed. He was anxious. It was bread of affliction. But the humble man of faith, oh... I'm getting my nourishment directly from God. I mean, come on. Can I think of a better waiter? Can I think of a better restaurant, a better takeout service than God? So therefore, it was a tremendous thing for him. It made him feel worthy and capable of being sustained by God's infinite goodness. And the Gemara explains, if you keep your score at home, it's like this bracha stuff, Mem Ches, Amit Beis, 48, side 2. When Moshe composed Birches HaMazin, Grace After Meals, he did that when the Jews were given the man. And Birches HaMazin recited 
You eat, you're satisfied, and you bench. But if the mana left people hungry, then how can they bench that they're satisfied? But now we understand that the humbled person that felt yeah they got uh, but okay leave it there. that God was sustaining him on a constant basis he said with great joy for the, this was true satiation He felt that he was full. The Medish tells us a very interesting Medish, I've said this many times, on Vayancha Vayachilcha Zaman, Zaman, he tortured us, he starved us, and he fed us the man. And the Medish Priya says, from here we learn out, Nedes Shabbos Kedish. That the candles of Shabbos candles need to be lit. Where does this random Pasuk or this random concept that we just discussed come to the candlelights of Shabbos? The holy, holy candles of Shabbos. Yimara tells us the candles of Shabbos were basically lit for Shalom Bayis for peace, tranquility at home, peace between husband and wife, peace between family. One of the reasons is, of course, because there was no lights in the olden days, and it would light up the room, and therefore people didn't fall over things, didn't hurt themselves, bumping into things. And another reason is, the mana sustained us. The mana also had another another beautiful thing to it. It tasted like anything you wanted it to taste like. If you said, I want to eat rib steak today, you tasted rib steak. If you said, you want to eat uh, potato latkes, it tasted like potato latkes. Whatever you wanted it to taste like, the greatness of the novelty of the mana was, it tasted like whatever you wanted. And... It was great, really. There should be no problem with that. But the fact of the matter is, though, you ate the mana, you thought rib steak, and you felt rib steak, you smelled rib steak, you tasted rib steak, you didn't feel the chew of the rib steak. The satisfaction that you go through when you bite into that steak, when you chew on it, there are different foods, you eat kaddish, you eat sour cream, it slides down, you don't have to, you don't have to chew these things. But a piece of meat, a person needs to chew. And the reason, one of the reasons is you need to chew because you're not going to choke on it if you don't. But one of the things is that the person gets, it's almost an exercise to him, it's almost a ritual, taking that piece of meat into his mouth and chewing on it, and gnawing on it. It's a machaya. Now, you ate the mana, and it tasted like rib steak. But it didn't look like rib steak. It didn't feel like rib steak. If you eat your Suda Shabbos, you eat your beautiful Shabbos meal, 
Boi Chala, Boi Chala. Come, the Shabbos Queen. Let me welcome you to my home. And you begin the Shabbos meal with the song of Shalom Aleichem. Welcoming the angels that accompanied you from the shul to home. And you end off with Tzayschem Neshalim. Go in peace, my angels. Referring to the angels that spent the entire week with you that came last Shabbos. And now these angels are leaving. So you say the Shalom Aleichem, the Tzayschem Neshalim, the Eishas Chayil, and the Kiddush Yoyim Hashishi Vayachula Hashemayim, which is the acronym for God's name. But it's dark in the room. And although the swaft, wafting smell of the challah is so delicious, it smells so good, it's so fresh, you don't see your challah, it's dark. So you cut it and you hope you're not taking your finger off while you're doing it. And you dip it in salt and you bite into it and it's scrumptious, it's delicious. But you don't see the challah. You don't see the beauty, you don't see how crisp it is, how well done it is, how much poppy seeds, or how much sesame seeds, or how many raisins, or whatever it has on it. You don't see it. And the same with your fish course. You don't know if you're eating salmon or gefilte fish, or both. And the same is with the matzo bowl soup with the noodles. You can't find your noodles! And the matzo bowl keeps bouncing out of your plate. Because you don't have any light. So you don't enjoy your food as though you're eating it, but you don't enjoy it. Tells us the Teda, you need to light the Shabbos candles on the table. And therefore you eat and you see your food. And thereby you have Einig Shabbos. Thereby you have the pleasure of Shabbos. This is This is the torture that they were put through when they were given to eat the man. The fact that they did not see the food that they were imagining. They did not feel. It did not touch their palate. It did not affect their palate to that extent. In the Pasha last week, Shema Yisrael V'Yahavta, Veschanan brings the first two portions, the first portion of Kriya Shema. And here, the second one is the Pasha V'Hayim Shemaya. V'Lemarat Meizam Ez V'Neichem L'Dabar Bam. You should teach your children to speak with them. This teaches us a father is obligated to teach Teda to his children. And the Alter Rebbe writes, A father is obligated to teach Teda to his young son, as it is written, and you shall teach them to your young sons to speak about them. And he says, For when is it obligated, from when is it obligated to teach him? From when the child begins to speak, you should teach him, Teda, Tziva, Lanu, Meshe. And also, Shema Yisrael. But we know that earlier in the Teda, it instructs us, I'm commanding you today, teach it thoroughly to your children. 
And that command, we know, teaches about a much higher level of study. About when the child is able to grasp and retain parts of the tater that are so much higher. And in addition, it translates their children. What does children mean? It means spiritual children. A person can be 40, 50, 60 years old. But he's not practicing and he's not learning Torah on a daily basis. He is a spiritual child. Even the spiritual child we must reach out to and we must teach them thoroughly Torah. And the contrast over here, the mitzvah stated, you shall teach them to your children to speak with them. Speaks of a very early stage in child's education. When he's just learning how to speak. From the moment your child learns how to speak, you must teach him Teira Tzivalano Mesha. And obviously, if the child is at that age, he's at home. And therefore the education begins at home, before it comes to a teacher. And this is the verse, the parent's personal mitzvah, to teach his child, has an obligation, goes into effect as soon as the child begins to talk. And we said many times that in the first parish of Krishna it says, You should teach your children and you should tie the tefillin on your arms. In the Hayyim Shemaya it says the opposite. It says, Put on the tefillin on your hand, on your head, and then teach your children. Why does the Teda vary? Why does the Teda alternate? And first say about the education, and then tefillin, and then in the next parish I'll talk about the tefillin, and then education. And the lesson, my friends, is a simple one, and a powerful one. There are times when one says, until the child's bar mitzvah, before ukshartam le'isayyadchem, I have an obligation to teach him teda. But once he's bar mitzvah, I say, Baal I'm finished with him. Says the second part of the parish of Vahim Shemaya. The second part of Kriya Shema. No. After the putting on the tefillin, you still have the obligation of the Maratameis Benechem. You still have a full-fledged obligation to teach and to educate your child. And with the people fulfilling these mitzvahs and not allowing themselves to step on mitzvahs, but rather involving themselves each and every mitzvah to its fullest value, and the value brings us to the fact that shchar mitzvah mitzvah, one mitzvah, the reward for a mitzvah is another mitzvah, will we'll merit to the ultimate mitzvah, and the ikvis the Meshicha, of Mashiach Tzidkenu revealing himself today in our lifetime, and bringing us to Yerushalayim Irakedish before this very Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom to all.